Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. You guys can be seated. It's beautiful getting the opportunity just to kind of stand in the corner and look out and watch the people of God worshiping together uh, as a gathered church. There's a lot of different ways that can look, but uh, it's always beautiful to see that on a Sunday morning at Horizon West Church. Um, And actually today we're going to be talking about the gathered church. Uh, We're in the home stretch of a series that we've been kind of in and out of for a year. I looked, it was January of 2023. We started going through Paul's letter uh, called First Corinthians, letter of uh, Corinthians uh, to the church in Greece. And so uh, we're there. It's been a, a long time. I hope it's been a profitable time. Uh, and it's exciting to be toward the end of that as we consider what it looks like to be a church gathered in worship. Uh, over the holidays, Nikki and I did something, our family did something that we do uh, with some friends annually. It's kind of a Christmas tradition. We have them over and uh, we, we share a meal together. Or we exchange gifts together. Uh, it's a family that used to live with us and now they moved to Sanford. They might as well have moved overseas because we never go to Sanford, and so it's a, it's a rare thing that we get to get that time with them. But these are our friends that are board gamers, okay? Not video gamers, but board gamers. And so pretty much every board game that we play has been introduced to us by this couple. So uh, Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, uh, Seven Wonders, and then they introduced a new one to us uh, this year called Mosaic, uh, which is the name of a church, but that's not what the game is about. It's, uh, it's a... And, and, and what happens inevitably is that these games, that they get like two minutes into explaining the rules and my mind just shuts down. I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. Right? Anybody else have a problem? It's way, way too complicated. Um, and then I learn the rules and then I dominate the game and it's just kind of how that goes. But, <laughs> but there's this inevitable thing when you're introduced to something new of kind of going, hey, how does this work? What are the rules? Um, and ultimately, how do I do this well? How, how do I win at this game? Or how do I perform this task the right way? And what you need to know is that when the church was first starting to gather in places like Galatia and Ephesus and Jerusalem and Corinth, it was brand new. Nobody knew the rules. Nobody knew how to play the game. Nobody knew what winning as being a church looked like. Yes, they had the teachings of Jesus. And yes, they had those apostles that planted. But then these guys were kind of off on their own with the Spirit of God into the great unknown. And Paul, in this portion of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14, is essentially trying to answer the question of what should happen when the church gathers? What should that look like? And he answers it in this way. It should be a diverse people that make up a unified body. That's chapter 12. And that unified body should be motivated by love, chapter 13. And then that unified body motivated by love should be exercising their spiritual gifts to the glory of God and for the good of one another. That's chapter 14 where we're going to be today. And what Paul is going to do is he answers this broader question of what should happen when the church gathers. He's going to hone in on two what are called spiritual gifts that are expressed in the gathered body. Now these gifts are not necessarily the most important ones. But they are often the most visible when the church gathers. First is prophecy. 
And, and don't think like predicting the future. That is one component of this gift to a degree. But prophecy is really just the ability to speak a word of encouragement, of correction, or of teaching. So, so these are known words from God that are given to people to encourage and challenge other believers. That's prophecy. The second one is tongues, or the Greek word is glossa, speaking in tongues, glossalea. And these are not known words from God, but unknown words spoken to God for the purpose of personal edification. So prophecy and tongues, both were happening in the church at Corinth, and Paul wants to give some guidelines around those two things. Now, we can step back and look at a kind of more broad picture of this because the reality is that the communicating of a message from God, what Paul calls prophecy, we might call it preaching, and the responding of our spirit to God, for us that might look like singing songs of worship in Corinth, that was a lot of speaking in tongues, but the more basic idea that God is communicating to us and we are communicating to God, these are the fundamental elements of what it means to be a church. Which is why if you found yourself at Citrus Church, a local Methodist church in our community, you would find them teaching from the Word of God and worshiping. If you went up the road to Resurrection Catholic Church near Winter Garden or in Winter Garden, you would find them doing two essential things, teaching the Word of God and worship through liturgy. If you were to go to Nigeria, if you were to go to Central Asia, or if you were to be part of the team that's going to Belize in February, and you were to enter into Christian churches in those places, you would find two essential elements, the teaching of God's word and the response of worship. And there's a reason that these two things are happening all over the world, and it's because scripture calls the gathered church to express itself primarily in these two ways. So with that, I want to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read a, a, an entire 40 verses, so stay with me. And we're going to encounter some really strange things in this passage, if I can just say that without being heretical. I, it's it's, it's going to create some questions that we're going to address together. So please don't throw any tomatoes before I finish reading the passage. Um, and if you need to leave, just slip out quietly. But I hope that as we unpack together what Paul is saying or what the Spirit of God is saying through Paul, there will be a word for us. So 1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men but to God, but the one, uh, uh, and no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation or comfort. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but I want you even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets those tongues so that the church may be built up. So brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how would I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or some knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp don't give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle or trumpet gives an indistinct sound, who's going to get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how is anyone going to know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none of them without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 
Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I then to do? I will pray in my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing praise with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving if they don't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than to speak 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, don't be children in, in the way you think. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, whereas prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, won't they say that you're out of your minds? On the other hand, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he or she will be convicted by all, called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God, declaring that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn, all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to, to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace." As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. No tomatoes, let me get through the passage. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but let all things be done decently and in order. All right, let's first address the question that's on everyone's mind. It's not the main thrust of Paul's message, it's not what he spends a lot of time unpacking, but what in the world is Paul saying, what does he mean when he says women should be silent in the church? I want to share with you just a, just a helpful way to approach Scripture, and that is not to just kind of open the Bible, read a few verses, and go, thus saith the Lord, and set out on your journey. Actually, a much better way to interact with the Word of God is to, to read all of it, to over time process, meditate on, digest, not only the letter of 1 Corinthians, but the Gospel of John, Genesis, reflect on the Psalms. Because what happens when you engage with the, what is called the whole counsel of Scripture is certain pictures begin to emerge to give clarity to things that are not as clear when you hone in on just those few verses. Let me give you an example that might scare you to know that it's in the Bible. In one place, Paul says that women will be saved through childbearing. 
Is that really true? Or does Paul mean perhaps something else? We're looking at the Greek, we're unpacking, we're teaching. This is why the gifts of being able to unpack Scripture together are so important and the the ability to learn it. So what is Paul saying? Here's what we know from Scripture. One, we know that women played a prominent role, both visibly and vocally, in the life and ministry of Jesus. They were not sitting quietly on the sidelines. They weren't zipping their lips in the company of Jesus. They were his disciples, they followed him, and they were used by him to great impact. Paul himself, who wrote the words we read, the challenging words we just read, affirmed women as deacons in Romans chapter 16, and affirmed the gift of prophecy or proclamation being in women in the gathered community of believers in chapter 11. So is Paul in one place saying, hey women, go ahead and prophesy in church, and another place saying, you're not to say anything, or is there something else going on here? Here here is the conclusion I have drawn as I've wrestled with this. You may come to another conclusion, that's okay. But what seems to be happening is that some in the Corinthian church, and in this case, in this context, it was some of the women, were disrupting the assembly and creating confusion and chaos by not understanding when and how and where to voice their questions. In fact, the Greek language has no distinction between the words for wives and women, nor does it have a distinction between men and husbands. Which leaves us to figure out, is Paul talking to women generally, or is he saying what I believe he's saying, which is wives, don't blurt out your questions to the apostles and teachers and pastors, Go ahead and let your husband talk with you about that at home because otherwise it'll be chaotic and disruptive. Everybody will be speaking out. It's not to say that universally women or even wives are a problem in church. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is in the context of the Corinthian church and of that time period, there is a better way. And I think what Paul really may be doing is trying to make sure that the order that God has established in the home is not thrown into chaos in the church. If if wives are making their husbands look bad, if they're asking questions that their husband could have answered for them, it it creates a scenario that God did not have in mind, okay? Now, that doesn't perfectly answer that question or solve all of that tension, but I do want you to know that I, myself, and we as a church are massively blessed by women using their gifts vocally, visibly, and otherwise to build up the church, I think Paul has a broader point that he's driving at, and the broader point here is this. The church is not to look like a free-for-all. That's why he says in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. It's not somebody going, hey, I'm going to just start doing cartwheels down the aisle. Or I'm going to interrupt the speaker and just start bringing my own word of prophecy. He's saying everything should be done decently in order. And the everything that should be done is going to look like two primary activities— And the first is this, every time the church gathers, what should be happening is first, spirit is touching spirit. I mean by that, the spirit of God is touching the spirits of men, of women, and of children. I'm borrowing here language from Richard Foster who said, we can use all the right techniques and methods, we can have the best possible liturgy, but we have not worshipped the Lord until spirit touches spirit. This means that you could have the best voice, you could hit the best notes, you could raise your hands in the air, you could weep, you could cry, you could do all of these things, but if what's happening is not the Spirit of God doing a work in your spirit, 
you have not worshipped. Conversely, you could be sitting quietly. You could be not even singing with your voice. And yet the Spirit of God is churning within you in worship, and that is what the Scripture calls worship. So it's not so much about what visibly is seen by others, it's about the Spirit of God touching the spirits of people. And it means, friends, that the church is not a few things. The church is not a marketing firm trying to perfectly brand itself for more consumers. The church is not a business integrating, you know, principles for profitable growth so that we can hit a certain metric by year whatever. And because of where we live, I need to say the church is not a theme park guaranteeing your enjoyment and entertainment. (laughs) Nothing wrong with those things. But those things aren't what the church is. The church, rather, is a spiritual family connected through spiritual faith to God who is spirit. One of my great concerns for the church in America and other parts of the world as well is we've so pragmatized this thing we so structured it, we, we so checked all the boxes in order that all of a sudden you can do church for a long time and look like the best Christian in the world and the Spirit of God have never touched your spirit and no one would know. One of the things we want to do on Sundays, Joe, Joe mentioned it earlier, we want to cultivate an environment where worship actually happens. One of the things I'm constantly praying as people attend, even first-time guests, we're constantly praying that those who attend Horizon West Church would have an encounter with God. We're going to talk about next steps, cards, and events. We want you more than anything to encounter God because we can't change you. God can. And so that is what we mean when we say spirit-touching spirit. For the Corinthian church, in addition to singing songs of worship, they reflected that spirit-touching spirit through the gift of speaking in tongues. So let me quickly walk you through kind of a a brief history of what Paul is talking about for those who may not be initiated. And honestly, some of us who have been in church for a long time and are still going, I don't get this thing. I don't understand this speaking in tongues thing. You need to know that tongues was something that has a history or a depth in ancient religions. So think Babylon, think Assyria, think even before that in ancient Egypt. And everywhere in history that tongues was manifest through a religious group, it was an evidence to people in their minds of the active presence of the gods. So if you're familiar with the story of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal are babbling, they're they're demonstrating tongues in the hopes of invoking their God and inviting his presence. So it's not unique to Christianity, but... In Mark chapter 16, after Jesus had risen from the dead, before he returned to the right hand of the Father, he said, there's going to be a few things that will be marks of those who follow me. And one of them, he said, is that they will speak in tongues. Now, he was certainly projecting something that happened in Acts chapter 2, which is where the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, both men and women, and they spoke in tongues at Jerusalem. So Jesus was predicting that. But we also see it a couple other places. I'll unpack that in just a minute. I want you to know that in Acts chapter 2, what is called Pentecost, so the the disciples are in what's called the upper room. It was the last place they had been with Jesus. Jesus has been crucified by collaboration of the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders. So they're hiding out and they're praying. Scripture says that the, the Spirit of God fell on them like tongues of fire. They went out from that place 
and going from locked doors to insane boldness, they began to proclaim in tongues the good news of Jesus. Now, this was a unique experience of speaking in tongues because in Acts chapter 2, this was not unknown languages. It was rather known languages that they themselves didn't know. I hope your head isn't spinning yet. Stay with me. In other words, they were speaking in languages that were actual languages that people in Jerusalem heard and went, that's, that's my language. But as far as I can tell, that's the only example of that taking place in the scripture. God did a unique work at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because these 120 men and women who spoke probably only Hebrew and Aramaic and maybe Greek, there had to be a way for the gospel to then get into Mandarin Chinese and to, into the Egyptian languages and the European and the South Asian. So God did a, a miraculous work to let the gospel be interpreted or translated into known languages so that people could be saved. There are two other instances in the book of Acts where people speak in tongues. Both of them are at the moment of conversion. Again, a sign of God's presence. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, we have the only place, and you can include 12 through 14, the only place where anywhere in scripture there is teaching about speaking in tongues. You might ask, why, why talk about the places where tongues comes? And here's my answer to that. Because though speaking in tongues is a gift of God, it is not the evidence of your salvation. It is not a requirement of having the Spirit of God live inside of you. The Scripture is very, very clear that at the moment a person confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God comes to live in them. And as far as I can tell in Scripture and personal experience, it doesn't automatically mean that tongues will happen. It's not automatically accompanied by that gift. You get a gift, but it may not be the gift of tongues. And three occurrences and one passage in all of the New Testament tells us we shouldn't build our entire church or denomination or culture on this one gift, okay? We need to order it in its healthy and proper place. Okay, so for those of you that are going, I still don't really understand this thing of speaking in tongues, Okay, and if you're, you're allowed to be honest like that, you go, I just, don't, I just don't get it. What's the benefit? What's the point? Paul says in chapter four, uh, uh, verse four rather, of chapter 14, he gives us a clue. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. We should then ask ourselves the question, how does speaking in a tongue or tongues build up a person? Many of you have had young children or babies, and you know that before a child can talk, a child can communicate. Right? Before they know the known language to put into words, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I'm injured, they know how to create sounds that get their parents' attention and express their need. Uh, let, let me go to uh, Romans chapter 8. Th this is not a passage on tongues, but I think you're going to hear this kind of concept as Paul teaches here. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, and not only the creation... But we ourselves, believers who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When our children were young, often it was Nikki who understood what their groanings and their screams meant. She was familiar enough with them 
to interpret their cries and give them what they need. And Paul says in Romans 8, this is much the way that the Spirit of God works in the life of a believer. You go, well, I've never, I've never felt the need to speak in tongues. Let me ask you this. Have you ever sobbed uncontrollably? Have you ever been behind the wheel of your vehicle, windows rolled up, and screamed at the top of your lungs? Have you ever tried to pray and found words just utterly and completely insufficient? See, we need to recognize that like babies or like children, sometimes we're going to come to God with things we don't really have all the language for. And tongues is an invitation, it's a reminder that God doesn't need the precision of our words, but he can interpret the groanings of our spirit. Would it be unusual if those inward groanings sometimes manifest themselves in language, in words, in sounds? In other words, I believe that tongues primarily is a meditation practice. That's why Paul says it's for the personal building up or edification. My theory and my limited, limited experience with speaking in tongues is that there's also something about the breathing patterns of tongues that helps in meditation. Okay? Now, I'm not getting weird. I could be wrong here. But when you are in prayer, you probably, like me, often feel a burden to craft the words the right way. You want to say the right things and identify the needs and the issues and pray for the people. And all of that's important. But when you speak in a tongue, you relieve yourself of the burden of precision. You allow your mind to kind of take a back seat to your spirit for a moment. And you descend into the spirit with God and just groan for what you need. And if I'm reading the scripture right, I think that's what's going on here. And Paul's going to say, hey, I'm glad for people to speak in tongues because it means that your relationship with God is being strengthened as spirit touches spirit in that way. But it is only a way, it's not the way. So let me say a couple other things about tongues and especially in the context of the gathered church because that's what Paul's talking about. First, you need to know that Paul says tongues must not be prohibited in the context of of a gathered church. But he, but he does give some regulations, some guidelines. Verses 27, 28, he says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, meditative prayer to God. So, tongues is permitted, it's not required, and when it's practiced, there are some guidelines. Same is true for all the gifts, actually. He says the same is true for prophecy. There's some guidelines. There's got to be order here. We're recognizing in this that we are a community of believers. We don't come to church and go, it's just me and God. No, no, no. It's you and God and the person sitting next to you and behind you and with you and across from you and the person in your small group. So we come and we we receive from God. Some of that's going to be personal, but a lot of that's going to be collective together. So it has its place. Jesus in John chapter 4 said these words, The hour is coming and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in both spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want to ask ourselves the question because there's a tension here. Uh, On the one side, are we so gung-ho for the Spirit of God to work? Are we so in love with the freedom of expression that God has given us that we've descended into pure chaos when we gather? I think I'm probably not the only one thinking, that's not us. (laughs) That's not our problem. Second question is, are we so into this order? One thing after the other. 
Everybody sits quietly. Everybody puts on the face, does their part, leaves. That we have ordered out the Spirit of God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And I'm not looking to, to, to essentially change who we are. The beauty of the, the good news of God and the gospel, it finds its way into all different cultures and languages and expressions. And you are not evaluated in your spiritual maturity by, by what it looks like when we gather. But I'm just asking the question. Might there be some room for us to step back and say, if, if what needs to happen is God's spirit touching our spirit, are we giving him space to do that? Are we giving God room to breathe, to be among us? to do a new thing, to disrupt us with his presence, and I hope that we are. But secondly, spirit touching spirit first, and secondly, we gather as a church for truth-changing lives. And I want to say that though I'm dealing with these in kind of a reverse order, Paul just jumps back and forth, so he's kind of going circular, you know, tongues and prophecy, tongues and prophecy. The reason I've ordered them this way is that I actually think prophecy is clearly the one that Paul is saying is the most important of these two gifts. In fact, verse 23 to 25, again, he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and called to account by all, the secrets of his heart disclosed, and then falling on the person's face, they will declare in worship that God is really among you. Now, I wonder, and I don't know for sure, but I wonder if Paul is thinking back to that Pentecost moment when the Spirit of God fell on the disciples. Because two things happened. First, a crowd gathered. But some in the crowd said, these guys are drunk. And you know what Peter's answer was? No, 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 they're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but that's how he answers. He's like, it's only nine. That's not what's going on. They're not drunk. And then Peter uses the fact that the gift of tongues had been given to speak a word of prophecy and all of the people, it says, were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what should we do? Now, here's, here's why I tell you that. This, is, this was kind of a like, oh man, breakthrough moment. So in reading the passage, Paul says two things that seem completely contradictory. On the one side, he says tongues is a sign for unbelievers. But if unbelievers come among you, they're going to think you're crazy. Well, then how is it a sign for unbelievers? The sign is the fact that it's happening. It's evidence that God is among you. But when they come, you got to give them the word of prophecy. you got to proclaim the gospel. In other words, it's the truth of God that penetrates the heart and changes the life of the person, if they are willing. Romans chapter 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10, nobody gets saved just because they had some ecstatic experience with God. People are saved when the truth of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in such a way and responded to that it transforms the inner person. That is the greater thing. And the reality is that all over the world, people can tell you about spiritual or ecstatic experiences that they have had, moments they were slain in the spirit in a church service, a moment when they looked up and they are sure they saw the face of Jesus in the clouds. Or maybe they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or Mecca or Colorado Springs, and they think that because of that spiritual experience, all is well. The way of transformation is not marked by irregular, ecstatic spiritual experiences, but by consistent and often monotonous paths of studying, meditating on, and applying God's truth. 
In other words, the Christian life isn't jumping from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience, but at times being willing to descend into the valley with the good shepherd who will not leave or forsake you there, walking through it by his truth and his light, getting to the other side and having a track record of not irregular moments where God showed up, but a life where God was present day in and day out and transformation took place. There are many people in our country and around the world who are already starting to tank on their New Year's resolutions because they were just convinced that if they just set a really big goal on losing weight, it would happen. But that's not what happens. You have to stop eating this and start doing that and start exercising. There are people that are saying, this is the year we're going to improve our finances because they set a budget, but that's not when your finances improve. They improve when you stick to your budget. And on and on and on, the spiritual life works very much like the natural life. Transformation doesn't come because we have this experience with God that will never wear off. Yes, it will. It comes because we make a commitment to submitting our life to Jesus as Lord and Savior and let his truth transform us. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. That by testing, you may discern with your mind what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I hope and pray each of you have a a vision and a dream for 2024. I know Nikki and I do, and we talked about those this past week. Goals that we've set, things we want to see happen. Some of that, much like when we, you know, interact with the Spirit, we can't really put words on, but we're, we're fleshing that out. And, And I want you to succeed in those things. I hope this is the best year of your life. But it may surprise you to know that it may not look or feel radically transformative. It may look monotonous. It may look plain. It may even feel boring. But my prayer, my hope for you is you get to the end of 2024 and you look back on a life that has been transformed by the Word of God. By hearing and doing His Word. In the last two years I've asked for two books for Christmas and gotten them both. Each year I'm asking for a book by Eugene Peterson and a book by Dallas Willard. Feel free to look those guys up and read everything that they've written when you get home. This year, one of those books by Dallas Willard, it's a book called Renovation of the Heart. And I've begun to read this alongside the other. And Dallas Willard in Renovation of the Heart says, A carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, foresee, forestall, or transform most of the painful situations before which others stand like helpless children saying, why? 2024 is going to have some great opportunities, friends. It's also going to have some moments that leave you asking, why did God allow this? No one sets a resolution to be less of something or or less financially stable or have a worse relationship, but life happens, brokenness occurs, and you need something that is more substantive than a wish list. You need to walk hand in hand with the God who can transform you by his truth. That's our prayer for you. I want to just quickly, before we end with a a song of worship and a closing word from Joe, I want to quickly give you two resources, just very practically, that I think maybe in tandem as you flesh these things out can be part of that transforming experience. The first is simply to give a shout out to an app that many of us use, which is called YouVersion Bible app. Let me ask show of hands, how many of you have this app and you use it with some regularity, okay? 
Um, I believe a lot of the languages, if not many or all of those, can be accessed there, but it's not just the 66 books of the Bible there. It's Bible reading plans. It's verses of the day. It's communities that can form. You could get with people who aren't even here or people who are that you do Bible studies together and leave comments. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful resource. We just simply know that transformation doesn't occur without the Word of God being involved. The second resource I want to give you has been created by a good friend of mine, Jimmy Knott, who at his website, jimmynott.com, has a spiritual gifts assessment. I feel a burden as I talk about spiritual gifts, and we didn't cover the whole gamut, but I have a burden to make that practical. Spiritual gifts just mean the things that God has uniquely wired you to do and made you to do that can edify and build up other people. For some of you, you're really, really good at leading projects. Leadership is a spiritual gift. Some of you can listen to somebody complain for hours on end because you have the gift of mercy. Others can teach or preach or prophesy or speak in tongues. These hundred questions at that spiritual assessment survey, spiritual gifts assessment, they will help you to begin to understand the unique way that you were wired. And here's what we're going to do. In the coming weeks, we want to help you take that and the things you've learned about yourself over the years and pair it with an opportunity to serve in the church and perhaps even in the community. So you're going to hear more about that in a few moments. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song of worship. And my prayer is going to be, a, a, a picture that I'm praying before God this morning. We, we can't will ourselves into the person we were created to be. We, we can't work ourselves into the goals that God has for this church and the dreams he has for us. But what we can do is like a sailboat is we can put up our sail and when the wind of God comes into our life, when the wind of God comes into our marriage, into our finances, into our church, we're ready to move. Can't will ourselves there, can't work ourselves there, but would you this morning just surrender your heart to God with that picture of a sail going up on the boat and say, Spirit of God, move and breathe in my life. And let's just see where God takes us in 2024. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Um, God, it is a, a challenging word this morning, no doubt. We are 2,000 years removed from a church called Corinth that was trying to flesh this stuff out, but God, what a beautiful, messy, remarkable thing it is that we are still here. We are still looking to your word for guidance. We're still asking your spirit to move. We're still seeking to follow Jesus into all the things that you have for us. And so God, we pray that this year will be a year marked not by ease of walking, not by mountaintop experiences, God, would this year be marked by your faithfulness fleshing itself out in the faithful lives that we live as we follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.